This morning, uh, we start a, a new series in a new book. We are going to be looking at the book of Ruth. Uh, so let me invite you, uh, if, if you're new to the Bible, there's the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's called the Pentateuch. And then there's Joshua, Judges, Ruth. And so if you'll turn to the eighth book of the Bible, uh, you'll find Ruth there. It's a very small book, four chapters. You could read it in, uh, in one sitting. As far as a book goes, it's a wonderful story, uh, a very incredible story. 3,000 years old, describing events from about 3,200 years old. Uh, if you remember back to your literature class, the Epic of Gilgamesh, Odyssey, the Iliad, um, just uh, as far as ancient Near Eastern literature, um, the book of Ruth dates to about that time. And as far as a book goes, it is a complete, uh, cogent story with um, uh, incredible power in, in the redemption that it points to. So I'm looking forward to it. I'm glad that we're able to, to work through the book of Ruth over the coming days, coming weeks. Uh, if you would like, we have resources available on the back. Uh, we have a journal, a Ruth journal. Some of you don't like to write in your Bibles, but if you had uh, the book, the Ruth journal that's available back there, it's got uh, places for you to take notes if that's helpful to you. Those are available in the back. Uh, let's read our focal point passage for today is verses 1 through 5 of chapter 1. And we don't always do this, but I'm going to ask that we stand for the reading of the Word of God, and we're going to look at verses 1 of this. Uh, it's not a command in Scripture, but we occasionally do it just to remind us that this is the Word of God. And uh, so let's read together. Ruth 1, verses 1 through 5. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the hill country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, able to penetrate and to divide soul and spirit, bone and marrow. We ask that you would use your word by the power of your Holy Spirit, who is our teacher and our guide into all truth. Help us to absorb and listen and apply the message that you have for us today. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to gather. We understand that in these days, in our country and in our culture, uh, there are uh, fewer and fewer places where people can hear the reading of your word, and more importantly, in the context of a fellowship of covenant Christians who have agreed to walk together by your spirit and in your power. And we pray that you would use your word together with us today to strengthen us and teach us and to cause us to walk and to resemble you more and more, Jesus. We ask it in your name. Amen. 
Well, have a seat. Uh, before we begin uh, back into the text, I have a confession to make, a rather embarrassing and humiliating uh, confession to make. The last time I preached a sermon uh, from the book of Ruth was in 1993. Uh, I was a student at a small school called Washita Baptist University in Arkadelphia, Arkansas, right? That's it's just weird as it sounds as it is. Uh, very bizarre name spelled O-U-A-C-H-I-T-A, not Wash like you would expect it to, but a different uh, school name. Just raise your hand if you were a student at Washita. Anybody? Oh my goodness. We have one other student here. <laughs> I know, what are the odds that someone would be here today from Washita? A fellow student. Um, well, also, raise your hand if you're from Norman, Oklahoma. Anybody? Oh, my goodness. Another fellow Normanite. Um, <clears throat> well, in that school and in that time, um, I was an associate youth pastor at a small Baptist church called Oaklawn Baptist Church in Hot Springs, Arkansas. And I had been in Christ for maybe two years. Um, and so I was a very new believer called to ministry and, you know, God bless you if you've ever listened to the first or second or third sermon of a young 19-year-old newly called minister. Uh, it's, it's, uh, you deserve combat pay for that, right? So this is where it gets weird. I had been instructed to preach from Ruth in the evening service, right? There used to be a time when you could go to church on a Sunday night at six o'clock and you would hear an evening sermon. I was supposed to do that, but it was Super Bowl Sunday. And so we decided we would do a morning church, and then we would have a, a potluck lunch, and then a visiting family to this uh, small church came, and they were going to sing two or three songs to before I preached the evening service in the afternoon, right? Does it make sense? It does if you're in that time uh, from that place in 1993. So this was my text, and, and, and I studied for weeks and weeks and weeks, and I was excited to preach this text, and I'm taking way too long at this already, but but. As, as college students do in the middle of the night, I, I saw some dumb illustration came to mind, and I thought, oh, I'm going to do that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rewrite the story of Elimelech, and I'm going to set it to the Beverly Hillbillies theme song. How many of you know the theme song for the Beverly Hillbillies? Let me tell you a story about a man, right? That one? I wrote it, uh, let me tell you a story about a man named Elimelech. It was the worst thing ever. But I, so I finished it, and it was so dumb, and I chuckled, and I filed it, and said, I'll never use that. So the next day at church, the pastor preaches, we have the potluck lunch, and the family that's going to do two songs, and then I'm supposed to preach, they, they persisted in doing like 16 songs off all of their albums, and they had all their CDs, in the, and they, they, they took until like 4 o'clock. And I could tell that the People just wanted to go home. They just wanted to be released from their misery. But I had this locked and loaded, <laughs> armed and ready to go sermon, and I was not going to do it. But I had to figure out, now how do I preach the sermon, but still keep the crowd so they don't kind of lynch me. So I got up there, and they were like, oh, I can't believe he's going to get up there and preach. And instead of preaching, I sang my dumb <laughs> Beverly Hillbilly song. <laughs> so... It was terrible. I will not do it. <laughs> I don't even know the lyrics anymore. But, but my hope, my prayer is, Lord, please don't let this be as bad as that was <laughs> today. So I trust that I've developed in some way over the years as a speaker and that my treatment of Ruth will be a little bit more respectful uh, than it was back then. 
So let's get back into the text, which is what will stick and what will last for us. Uh, not my words, not my story, but, uh, but, but the text of Scripture here. In Ruth chapter 1, uh, we understand, uh, we, we see here it says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And if you just stop there, this helps us understand what's taking place. Because in the days of the judges tells us two things. It doesn't just help us time stamp when Ruth, the events of Ruth took place, but it also gives us a theological framework and a context for what's taking place. So first, let's deal with the first thing. In the days when the judges ruled, helps us to understand that the book of Ruth, we don't know who wrote it, maybe Samuel, um, but it helps us to understand that it was written after the events took place. And if you're unsure about that, flip over to Ruth uh, chapter 4, a couple of pages, and look at verse 7 of Ruth 4.7. Now this was the custom in the former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. All right, so the author of Ruth is going to explain something that is no longer practiced. He's, he's educating the hearers. This is what they used to do back in Israel when they would redeem property and so on and such, such and so on. Uh, skip down to um, chapter 4, verses 18 through 22. You see the genealogy. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. And Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Now we all know that Boaz is in the story, but this, this is written later. And it may have been written to help the readers understand the lineage of King David. So maybe three, four hundred years after the events take place, the judges ruled from 1400 BC to um, about 1000 BC, a 400 year period. So we can timestamp the book of Ruth to sometime after 1000 when kings uh, began to rule in Israel. So back to chapter one, in the days when the judges ruled. Now I said the second part that you need to know about the days when the judges ruled, it doesn't just give us a timestamp for when the book was written, but it also frames for us um, what the times of the judges were like. Flip over just back a few pages to Judges chapter 17. Judges chapter 17. It says in chapter 17, verse 6, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now flip over to Judges 21, 25. What do you see there? The same verse, right? In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And if you look at Judges 18.1, it says, In those days there was no king in Israel. And then if you look at Judges 19.1, it says, In those days there was no king in Israel. So what do you have here? What you have here are five chapters with two bookends. 17.6, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everybody just did whatever they wanted. And in 21.25, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everybody just did whatever they wanted. And in verse uh, 19.1 and 18.1, what you find here is a thread. And all these verses link to the point. 
and sandwiched in between those two bookends are five stories that demonstrate the point. The point is that there was no king and everyone did whatever they saw fit to do. To put that in our language today, I remember the times when my kids were little and I would just get inundated with songs from their DVDs and their TV shows, Wonder Pets and uh, Dora the Explorer. I remember one time teeing off with a bunch of guys on a golf course and I'm singing da 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 And one guy's like, what are you singing? Like, oh man, I don't know. I just watched all these kids shows all the time. I guess I'm humming Dora the Explorer, right? Well, one common theme in all those things was that, uh, that you should just follow your own heart. Whatever your heart tells you to do is the right guide and you should trust it and follow your heart. That's, that's kind of the same thing that's going on here is that, that in our, common, our current culture right now, the idea is that you have the way out of all your problems in your own heart and you just need to kind of follow it. Kind of along the lines of Conrad's testimony. I felt like I could get myself out of any hole or situation that I was in. Um, that's the language of our culture. Follow your heart. But listen to the, the judges' situation. They had been led to the promised land by the most capable, perfect leader of their time, Moses. Through the Red Sea, into the wilderness wanderings, they had been passed off into Joshua, into the conquest of Canaan, uh, into the land. By been given the, the, the most perfect law, they were ruled under a theocracy, which means that God is the ruler of their government. They had a perfect law, they had perfect leaders, and in the time of the judges, what happened? In the time of the judges, they went through these cycles where they were given the perfect law, and then just like a car that's hit too many potholes, you let go of the wheel and it veers, their flesh took over and they veered and strayed from the word of God. And so you find these cycles in judges. They stray. Cycle one, part two of the cycle, God afflicts them in some sort of a disciplinary way with a a foreign government coming in and raiding them or ruling over them or warring with them uh, or a pestilence or a famine or something along those lines. And then they're grieved and struck to the heart by the discipline, which Hebrews 12 tells us that God disciplines those he loves. And so in the process of that, the third part of the cycle is they would cry out to God and that they would repent of their sins and that in the, the conviction that the Holy Spirit brings, God would raise up the fourth part of the cycle Right, you know, Ehud and Gideon and Deborah and uh, Samson, some you know ideal deliverers, some not. But but that was the process in the time when the judges ruled, is that everyone was just doing whatever they wanted. Now the five stories sandwiched in Judges are just terrible stories. I mean, some of the worst: uh, uh, dismembering of bodies. Um, stealing of property, slaughtering innocent villages. This is what it looks like when we just follow our heart, when we kind of do what we want. But that gives us some context as we look back at Ruth, right? Ruth 1, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem in Judah. Bethlehem means house of bread. Uh, So in the context of a famine in the land, a man from the house of bread goes to sojourn or to travel for a short period of time in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Verse 2 tells us that the man's name was Elimelech. You know what Elimelech means? Melech is king and Eli is the name for God. It just simply means my God is my king. 
He and his wife, Naomi, her name meant pleasant, right? They're not an all-American family, but an all-Israel family. I mean, think about, my God is my king. Do you take this pleasant woman to be your bride? And there's this kind of happy moment in Bethlehem with all of its uh, messianic implications and and Bethlehem being this prominent place in Israel. Um, But their, you know, marriage and their uh, union together changes with this famine because the names Malon and Kilion um, Malon means sickly or mild, and Kilion means wasting away. Anybody have those names for your kids? No? Sickly and wasting away. Uh, not very common names for us, of course, but, but they would name their children, one theory says, uh, a few years after to describe a situation or to reflect the character of the person. Uh, they wouldn't always just name their children or their name had some significance on my God, child wasting away and sickly. Doesn't that give you some reflection of what they were going through? And so if we're following our heart, it would make sense that in the context of a famine, a guy whose name means my God is my king and his pleasant wife have these two sick or infirm children and they they don't know how they're going to take care of them. Doesn't it make sense that he would say, I know that they have food in Moab, so I will go and dwell there. I'll just visit there until the famine is over. Elimelech is leading his family And if we don't understand the nuances of Moab, then we would not think too much of this, but but Moab was an enemy of Israel. Not just an enemy, but God had prohibited and uh, commanded them not to dwell among the Moabites. Not even to intermarry with them. Just listen. Um, In Deuteronomy 23, 2-6, No one born of a forbidden union may enter the assembly of of the Lord. A marriage to a Moabite was forbidden. Why? Well, you know your Bible history. Lot and his family fled from Sodom and Gomorrah. The wife looks back and she becomes what? Pillar of salt. You're all very, yeah, very good. Then uh, the two, Lot and his two daughters go to a little town uh, and then they're overwhelmed by the darkness there. And so eventually they flee to the hills and dwell in a cave. And the rest of that story is a little R-rated, but uh, suffice it to say that Lot has offspring and, uh, and that offspring becomes Moab, and it's, um, it's be- becoming a, an ungodly nation. As a matter of fact, historically, uh, when they passed through from Egypt, uh, the Moabites hired Balaam. Remember Balaam with the crazy talking donkey? They hired Balaam to curse them. Cursed them as they went through, and Balaam couldn't curse them. He could only bless them. Um, And then Balaam told them, we learned from Revelation, that later Balaam told them how to trip up Israel. Do you remember how to do it? Entice them with your daughters in seductive ways so that they intermarry. And by intermarrying in these seductive, sexually explicit ways, their daughters of Moab would teach your children how to worship in these false idols and these household idols and these false ways. And in that way, you would corrupt Israel from the family up. Marriage to Moabite women was forbidden. They were the enemy. Just imagine if there was a local Philadelphia native son who becomes all state and 
chooses to go to Temple or Villanova, and then he chooses to play football for the Eagles locally, and then when the Eagles don't do well, he, he rises up and takes his family where? To Texas, right? He goes to Dallas. This is the kind of the idea that Elimelech's not just taking his family to Egypt or to Philistia or to Amnon or to Canaan or to the Jebusites or even to another place. He's going to the enemy. He's leading his family to the enemy despite the clear commandment of God telling him not to. So what happens? Verse 3 tells us, Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died and she was left with her two sons. Now at this point, there's an option. Naomi has a choice. She's two young children, maybe teenagers by this time. We know the time frame is kind of when they were young until the time uh, they were able to marry. Uh, a few verses later, it tells us it's about a decade that they're there. So she has a choice to make. She doesn't have to stay in Moab. It's a sinful place, a land where filled with compromise and idol worship, and, and she doesn't have to stay there. She could pick up with her two sons and move back home, move back to Bethlehem. They didn't have to stay. Why did they stay? Well, the answer may be better posed for a question for all of us. Why do any of us who are redeemed stay in sin? Why do we continue to walk in pervasive, stubborn, unrepentant, willful sin? Jesus describes it as that men love darkness more than they love light. They stayed, and I'm speculating, Naomi stayed maybe because she felt more at home in the land of sin than in the land of God's people. Maybe she felt more at home in the land of compromise than in the land of promise. Maybe she felt more at home with these false idols and these false gods and their worship than she did in the prescribed worship of the Almighty. So they stay, and then verse 4 tells us that these two sons took Moabite wives. This is a persistence in sin. The command was very clear not to marry these. Don't intermarry. But they did. They persisted in sin. And it tells us that they dwelt in Moab for a decade. Here's a good point of application for us here. It's better to suffer in the Lord than to suffer outside of the Lord. Do you know what I mean? It's better to suffer with God's people, with God's word, with God's presence, with the worship, with the community. The Bible promises that we're going to suffer. In Christ, we're going to struggle. Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. He said, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. He said, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Jesus um, pointed to uh, followers that would struggle. If they, if they treated me this way, that if you're in Christ, you're going to struggle. You're going to experience trials. James tells us in chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, to consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the, the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. 
And steadfastness must finish its work so that you become mature and complete. So God uses trials in the life of a believer. It has a purifying effect. I mean, aren't you grateful that God doesn't reveal all your sin to you at once? When I came to faith in Christ as a 17-year-old in Norman, Oklahoma, uh, I'm so grateful that in those first moments, God didn't try to reveal to me all the darkness and all the sin in my life. He just met me where I was, and progressive sanctification teaches that, that God meets you and that as you walk in Christ, trials come and they reveal something about yourself that you didn't know was there before. Stuff that you thought you had dealt with just bubbles up to the surface and it has a purifying effect as you suffer in Christ. It's the same idea as Jacob wrestling with the angel of God across the river Jabbok and Peniel in this place where he, he was wrestling with God. He wasn't fleeing from God. He wasn't trying to get away from the presence of God. He was wrestling with God and he kept saying, I will not let you go until you bless me. Suffering in Christ feels like that. Amen? I won't let you go. I'm going to endure. I'm going to be steadfast until you bless me. And that's what it means to wrestle in Christ. But, but Elimelech wanted no part of that. He led his family on a shortcut. I'm going to lead my family away from God's people, away from the worship of God, away from the presence of God, away from the ark of God, away from the perfect government of God, away from the theocracy where God rules. In the midst of a famine, I'm going to lead my people on a short I'm going to lead my family on a shortcut, revealing the character of Elimelech. Naomi learned that the pain of obedience is nothing compared to the pain of disobedience. Staying in Bethlehem, remaining with God's people and suffering well under the discipline of God through a famine produces something in God's people. Just look at verse 6. She arose with her daughters to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited His people, number one, and had given them food. God, see, God didn't just give them food. What else did He do? He visited His people. He comforted His people with His presence. With His own presence, He, he visited His people, and he, he produced something in them through their repentance, and through their faith, and through their willingness to remain in the Lord. Elimelech chose the easy way, and it cost him everything. Well, if we conclude here, verses 1 through 5, it's a tragedy. It's a tragedy. Disobedience, sin, death, punishment. You're left feeling like God is punishing Naomi from the consequences of her own sin and poor decisions. Through the years, I've had people say, I'm really struggling. I'm really, I don't know why God is doing this to me, but is he punishing me? Is this, is this his punishment for all the bad decisions I made? If we end Ruth at verse 5, we're left asking that question, aren't we? But the answer, as we continue in the book of Ruth, weeks, is that but God, tell me story. It's not the end of your story. 
If you're feeling your life resembles Naomi and it's a tragedy, there's no hope that you're in the darkness of your own situation, understand that while you're at the worst of your moments, God is preparing a redeemer, right? Boaz, 50 miles away, seven to 10 days walking distance from where Naomi is in Moab under the worst of conditions, burying three people that she loves. She's just seven to 10 days away, 50 miles away along a long dusty road of repentance and returning to Bethlehem and returning to the people of God and returning to the roots. She's, God is working in Boaz's life. She doesn't know the end of the story, does she? All she knows is the pain and the misery that she's in right now. And I'm, I'm grateful that Ruth doesn't end at verse 5. So for us, when times seem like they're at their worst, hold on in faith and repentance because God can do more through your tragic story, through your failures, through your sinful wanderings. He can do more in your story to bring hope and redemption. And this is the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That while we were still in our sin, Christ died for us. God has prepared a Redeemer. If we will look to Him, just as Moses lifted up the snake on a staff and that all who looked to Him were healed, you can today look to Christ. If you're in a moment like Conrad was, where I thought I could handle it all, but I couldn't, and I finally yielded. At the worst time of his life, he looked to Christ, and there's redemption and there's new life, and there's forgiveness, and there's hope. That's the beauty of the gospel. In Psalm 34, I think about this passage. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and He saves those who are crushed in spirit. David's testimony was, verse 6, This poor man cried out, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. He says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. That's the end. That's, that's the end of Ruth. There's a redeemer. You know the end of the story. Boaz, Ruth, Naomi, there is a good story that comes. So don't, don't stop reading at verse 5 and trust in the, in the Lord as you cry out to Him. Lord Jesus, we exalt You today. We exalt Your name. We thank You that even in the darkest of our times and situations, that there is a Redeemer in Israel, that there is a Redeemer in the world, that His name is Jesus Christ, and in Him we find hope and healing and forgiveness and grace. And our testimony can be, my life was in the pit, but God, and but His grace, I would be a dead man. We praise You that You have chosen to redeem us from the pit not for our own glory or for our own majesty, but so that we can give this testimony. But Jesus intervened. We thank you for the grace in which we stand. 
We thank you that we don't stand in our own works of righteousness or our own goodness or our own education or our own Christian background or our own upbringing. But if we stand, we stand in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. I thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have chosen to shower us with your and mercy. It's my prayer that if any here today are overwhelmed by the darkness of their own situation, that they would but lift up their eyes for redemption is near. We pray, Jesus, in your holy name, that you would bring new life today, that you would cause people to be convicted of their sin and to repent, and that you would grant them the gift of faith and repentance, that they may experience your mercy today. We bless you for it, and we can sing with conviction because you've given it to many. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.